You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. With me is Michael Power, investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town, for the first in a series of three podcasts which follow up on a podcast we conducted together earlier this year under the title Reorientation. This is chapter one of part two of Reorientation, and it's titled An Unequal Relationship. Now, the China's relationship with the West has always been unequal, but in various forms. I mean, centuries ago, it was a different sort of unequal relationship than for the past, say, three or four decades, Michael? Yes, absolutely. Although there is a recurring theme that runs throughout the period with one exception in the in the 19th century, and that is that, broadly speaking, the rest of the world, including the West, has wanted more from China than China has wanted from the rest of the world. China being a continent-sized economy um, has, broadly speaking, been able to produce pretty much everything that it needs. There are a few things that it it, it can't, um, but they're often related to raw materials. Yes, you say, aside from commodities and a few specialist items, China wants very little from the world beyond its borders. Is that an unhealthy inequality? Probably is, and it cuts against the idea of, of you know, the international trade should be conducted under the umbrella of comparative advantage. Um, yes, it probably is. The problem is, is who is it unhealthy for? Um, is it unhealthy that the rest of the world is, is as it were, addicted to China, um, rather than the fact that China uh, doesn't want very much from the rest of the world? Yes, it's a good point. I think the rest of the world needs China because it can make stuff that we need at a far, far more competitive price than, for example, the United States could if it uh, just used American-made goods, for example. I mean, that's where uh, the unequal side of things comes into most laymen's minds, I think. Yes, that's right. Although I would say that up until the Opium Wars, which was uh, did bring about an exception in this uh, generalization, um, the, the rest of the world wanted China for its luxuries. Um, today, I would argue that broadly, the rest of the world wants China for its necessities or what is regarded as necessities. Just give us a brief uh, history of the unequal relationship between China and the West before we go on to uh, more contemporary matters. Well, China started to trade with areas outside of its borders uh, and particularly moving towards uh, Europe when it needed the horses of the steppes region of Eurasia. Um, And it started to send products in return for this. But those products started to leak even further west and eventually reached Rome, where uh, the Senate there tried to stop uh, silk because uh, they regarded it as immoral and decadent. But nevertheless, um, the relationship was established. And the pattern was that, by and large, the rest of the world didn't so much send stuff in return. It sent particularly uh, silver, but also to a lesser degree gold. And then that has progressed through the decades, through to the time of 1840, when the Brits were sick and tired of the idea that they didn't really have very much to sell to the Chinese. So they came up with the idea that the one thing that the Chinese did want was opium. Of course, the Chinese didn't want to accept it, so the British went to war to force them to accept it. And then for the next 60, 70, 80 years, poor China became addicted to opium. So that was the one time, as it were, and this was mainly Indian opium, although the Americans added Turkish opium that was traded into China. Then 
after uh, 1979, of course, the, the whole thing started up again. Yes, indeed. In 1979, of course, uh, China's re-engagement with the modern world began when Deng Xiaoping declared China, you say here, would henceforth pursue an open-door trade policy. And over the next uh, over the next two decades, China built its global market share in the lower added value manufacturing items that I sort of obliquely referenced earlier that often typify a nation's climb towards full-blown industrialization, shoes, textiles, toys, and other plastic goods. And from that uh, bedrock... Goodness me, there's been an extraordinary explosion. Indeed, um, but that's the way that historically, dare I say it, uh, the likes of Hong Kong, even before that, Japan have climbed on the uh, ladder and they've then uh, upgraded the products that they make uh, or in the services that they provide and someone else has displaced them lower down that, uh, that ladder. And more recently, China has pretty much displaced everyone at the bottom end of the, the ladder, though I would, I would say today that the likes of Vietnam and uh, Indonesia and even the Indian subcontinent are starting to displace China. So China needs to, it doesn't need to play catch up, but it needs to be very mindful of the fact that there are other people looking to steal its lunch. Indeed, although China would also say that if we are going to improve our economy and therefore the welfare of the people within it, we have to move to higher value-added product. Uh, we can't keep everybody making uh, you know, plastic flowers and toys. Where do we stand now when it comes to, to, to trade? Obviously, it's not just toys and, and, and textiles anymore. Um, what is the big growth area for China when it comes to the goods that it wants to send to the rest of the world? Well, leaving aside the products that were needed as part of uh, addressing COVID-19, and they cannot be completely ignored. I mean, the Americans woke up last year to discover that over 90% of the ingredients that went into their antibiotics were sourced from China, mm. um, as well as over 90% of their PPE. Uh, China is now moving into areas like electric vehicles. It's um, later this year likely to license its first uh, large-scale commercial aircraft, the c 91 Nine, And we're seeing it starting to move in things like um, batteries, where one company uh, in China, CATL, now has about a 50% market share of, of the batteries that go into, into cars. Um, drones, uh, China, there's one company in China that has a, a 70 to 80% share in, in drones. So there are all sorts of quite high value added products now that the Chinese are starting to dominate and to export to the rest of the world. But they still run short when it comes to things like uh, microchips, where the Taiwanese uh, and the Koreans can make far better microchips than they can, often using intellectual property, uh, which is supplied from the United States. Um, things like the, 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 the machines that make those chips, the EUV machines, uh, of which ASML of the Netherlands is the world's best producer. So there are still areas, and they tend to be rather limited, but nevertheless they are rather critical, um, that the, the Chinese basically must import uh, from the rest of the world. But if you look at their imports at the moment, they are basically slowly but surely crossing off the list uh, industrial items, which previously they may have had to buy uh, from outside, which increasingly they can now make for themselves. And the what remains on the list, by and large, is increasingly commodities. So to summarise then, over the past four decades, uh, global trade patterns have reintegrated China. What about new direction in China's path ahead? Because it seems to me that this incredible transformation over uh, four decades is going to continue to be a transformational momentum. What are the new directions, Michael? 
firstly, I think one of them is that the Chinese companies themselves are now moving abroad to a far greater degree than they were before. So, for instance, uh, if you look at the textiles industry of, of Bangladesh or, or, or Southeast Asia broadly, there's a lot of Chinese money in it. So we're now seeing, um, whereas before it really was Chinese companies producing within China, uh, an increasing example, and we have it next door to us here in, in, in Lesotho in, in South Africa. Uh, Chinese companies are essentially, uh, along with Taiwanese companies, the main producers of the textiles that, that Lesotho is famous for exporting. So I think that, that the integration now of China Inc. into the global economy um, is now taking place. I also think that they're pursuing things like the Belt and Road Initiative as part and parcel of that process, partly because uh, they need to look to their own demographic time bomb at the end of this decade and essentially piggyback on the young countries of the world and the demand that comes from the young countries of the world to supplement uh, the demand that will no longer be coming from their somewhat shrinking demographic picture. So I think we are beginning to see China move on to the front foot and not merely export from China, but uh, Chinese China Inc. export from, from all over the world. In your conclusion, you talk about the challenges ahead and you start by saying the following. It says here, breaking into Chinese markets has never been simple for Western companies and it's unlikely to get any easier. As China and the East continue to grow and develop and the center of gravity of global trade shifts inexorably eastwards, many Western companies may find it increasingly tough to maintain and grow their export businesses. Is that because of the competitiveness of China or because of regulatory, regulatory issues? What are the challenges from your point of view? Both of those. Um, I would think that if China needs the stuff, they'll let the regulations stand aside. But uh, as soon as uh, China can produce the stuff themselves, the regulations might become a little bit more prickly. And so I think that uh, that's what we're likely to see. For instance, they are now moving ahead very much in the production of plastics themselves, but it's now becoming much more complicated for foreign companies to either export plastics or produce plastics uh, within China, simply because Chinese companies can now do it themselves. And I'm talking here about fairly high-value-added plastics, of course. I think we're going to see the Chinese essentially look where they can uh, to support their own. But also, I think we're going to see things like, for instance, uh, there's been an assumption, indeed, we can think of the likes of Richemont in South Africa has relied upon uh, China's consumption of luxury goods to drive forward their growth for the last decade or so. And I, I think it will continue to feature heavily in their future. But we should not uh, imagine a world uh, uh, in the future that does not include within it some homegrown luxury brands that are going to come out of China. After all, as I said before, until 1840, the world went to China for its luxuries, um, not for its necessities. So it was its silks and its teas and various other things like that, its porcelain um, that, that uh, China exported before uh, 1840. And uh, I think that, that we will there will come a time in the not-too-distant future when uh, we will look at uh, China for the companies that produce luxuries as well. Michael Power, thanks very much for your insight. That was chapter one of part two of Reorientation, entitled An Unequal Relationship. Chapters two and three will follow soon. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position 
or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer, or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.